So Romans 7, I'll get there in just a moment, but I want to give some intro first. So I don't know if you've been able to tell the past couple of weeks, the Lord's really been doing a work in me personally. And so today we're going to kind of build on, it's really two weeks ago. So here we go. The first words of Jesus in the Gospel of John are recorded in John 1.38. And these are the first words that John, the writer of the Gospel of John, this is the first words of Jesus that he writes. Jesus asked a question. He asked, what do you seek? What do you seek? It's the first words of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And he asked this to two disciples of John the baptizer. I call him baptizer instead of Baptist because people think the Baptist denomination came from John because he was the Baptist, and that's not true. So I use baptizer just to clear that all out. But anyway, nothing against the Baptist. It's just, you know, false, false association. Um, he asked this to two disciples of John the baptizer who have decided to follow Jesus. They respond to Jesus's question, what do you seek? By asking, where is he staying? It's a really odd exchange to, I mean, for us. What do you seek? They say, where are you staying? And then the second thing that Jesus says in the gospel of John is, come and see. So the first two things Jesus says in John's gospel, really significant. What do you seek? Come and see. This exchange may seem insignificant, but it is an exchange that all of us must face. Jesus, fully God, the word of God, the image of God, and the image of humanity at this point, the word becomes flesh, asks every single one of us, what do you seek? Another way you could ask this is this, what are you looking for? So my question for you today, this is what we're going to talk about, is what do you seek? Or maybe I could ask this, what have you been seeking? Perception is everything. How you come to know someone is always defined by your perception of them and usually preconceived. If you don't trust someone, maybe because of what they've done or what they've said or how they've acted in previous situations, that perception of them as, for example, crooked or untrustworthy will always hinder your ability to have a true relationship with them. Right. Have you ever had a friend or maybe even a boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever that has broken your trust? Right. All of us have probably had that. If you're in ministry, you've definitely had that. Um, so in that, it's really difficult to um, it's also really difficult to preach when, you know, people are walking up the stairs because it's just like this slow you know, thing. So when they walk in, stare and just make it really awkward. No, don't do that. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Um, they'll never come back. Um, but reel it in. When somebody breaks your trust, for example, your relationship with them afterwards is always hindered or slowed down, or there's almost a glass ceiling on how close that relationship can be because of a new perception that's come about by way of somebody failing your trust, right? Welcome. Hey, what's up? <laughs> oh, man, I didn't want to make it awkward for you guys when you walked in, so I just wanted to go ahead and say, hey, um, glad you guys are here. So anyway, whether or not 
whether or not we want to admit it, all of us see the world through preconceived perceptions. All of us. The perceptions that we have are formed over time by our experiences and, to put it bluntly, how gullible we are to believe things simply because of what we've been told. Hello, news. Or religion. I think religion and news are really closely related to how they, how they use information. But that's neither here nor there. But it's not only the world that we see through preconceived perceptions, it's most blatantly God that we see through preconceived perceptions. We see God as we want to see God. I need y'all to hang with me. We see Jesus as we want to see Jesus. We see the gospel as we want to see the gospel. And we are typically so entrenched in our perceptions that we distort them for reality. Therefore, when any truth rubs up against our uh, preconceived perceptions, we deem the truth, typically, a lie, and we hold tight to what is comfortable. The God and the gospel that we have formed through our delusions and perceptions. This is what we do. Anytime truth comes in, and starts to rub up against the things that we've always believed or the things that we've always been told or the things that we've always held true or even the perceptions of God that we've always had. When truth comes in and begins to rub up against those things, typically, especially in the West, because we're all about perfect truth, typically when that happens, most of the time, we'll reject truth for the security and safety of the things that we've always believed or we've always been told simply because we're comfortable in what we've always known and uncomfortable in things that are new or things that maybe go a little bit against things we've always known, even if they're the truth. You with me? Let me read this. See Baxter Kruger, Jesus and the Undoing of Adam. If I could recommend anybody read any book, it would probably be this one and St. Athanasius on the Incarnation, um, both of these. But let me, let me just read this. He says, Perception is not everything, but it certainly dominates our experience of every person we meet, every event, and every situation or place that we encounter. We cannot help it. We interact with our world based upon our perception of it. It seems obvious, therefore, that one of the keys to intimacy in our marriages is the ability to revise our perception of one another. The same is true in science. If we are to penetrate the mysteries of our world, then our perception of it must be in constant revision. That's amazing. Okay? The New Testament refers to such revision of our perception as repentance, the radical reorientation of our minds. The disciples of Jesus learned by bitter experience that human king, excuse me, human beings have a way of imposing their own ideas upon God. And they learned that in doing so, we not only create a God of our imagination, we also miss the real God and thus the joy of his presence and activity and blessing. It's not surprising, therefore, that the New Testament is filled with the constant command to repentance. For all of us being, consider, being in considerable mental baggage. It's a tongue twister right there. 
All of us bringing considerable mental baggage into our relationship with God, with one another and with the whole creation as two people inevitably bring habits of thinking, living and relating into their marriage. We all bring habits of mind into our discussion of Jesus Christ, whether we know it or not. To grow in our marriages means at the very least that we must become aware of our habits of thinking and relating and aware of the way that those habits poison the possibility of real intimacy. It is very much the same in scientific enterprise. If we are to unlock the secrets of the cosmos, we must face the fact that we obscure the truth of things by imposing our own ideas upon them. Similarly, the way to deeper and truer knowledge of Jesus involves an increasing awareness of our mental baggage and of the way our own baggage obscures the true Jesus. I'm going to just read a little bit more, so just hang with me. The idea of mental baggage, however, is not necessarily a bad thing. For our ideas and concepts, our categories, assumptions, and notions function together as a pair of glasses, as it were, through which we perceive and make sense of the world. Without mental glasses of some sort, we would be blind and have no way of conceiving the realities pressing upon us or of processing the endless variety of information coming to us. I don't have much more. It would be like trying to dance with someone in pitch black dark to the music of three or four different songs at the same time. Now, this is a lot, but I really I need you to pay attention to this. The fact that we all have mental glasses and inevitably use them is not where the problem lies. The difficulty lies in the fact that we have the wrong prescription. That is to say, our ideas and concepts, our categories and assumptions are skewed. There is thus a very real difference between mental baggage itself and mental baggage. The crisis of human knowledge lies right here. Whether we are talking about two people seeking to know one another in marriage or a scientist seeking to know the intricacies of the cosmos or a person seeking to know Jesus Christ, if we are to know anything as it is, and thus have true knowledge of it, we must deal with our baggage. We must refine our mental instruments so that they are increasingly appropriate to the thing or person we want to know. Otherwise, we shoot our own dreams in the foot. For failure to repent, failure to revise mental baggage, or excuse me, inerrantly means that we are imposing our own alien ideas upon the world and the people around us, thereby dooming ourselves to live in a world generated by our own imagination. I've got to read this last paragraph. I have to. Y'all good? Consider this your classroom for the day. The price tag in marriage on such imposition is the lack of real intimacy and fellowship. How could we ever come to know the other person if we are in fact recreating that person in our own image and relating only to the image that we have invented. In science, the price of imposing our own ideas onto reality is the loss of discovery with all of its immense rewards. In Christian faith, it is the loss of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Forcing our own ideas upon Jesus is a singular disaster. 
For it is only in knowing the staggering truth about Jesus, who he is, what he has done for and with and to the human race, that we are set free from the bondage of our profound and debilitating anxiety and into the freedom to live. The hope and joy we so desperately desire, the passion and courage, the dignity and freedom, the wholeness and fullness for which we long are the fruit of simply knowing Jesus Christ. It is as we come to know him, and here's the caveat, the real Jesus, as he is in himself as the father's beloved son and the Lord and savior of the human race, that we are quickened with a hope and a freedom and inspired with a life that we enjoy and that is not our own. It was the pearl, after all, that took away the breath of the merchant and so moved him, so moved him, that he sold everything to buy it. That's in Matthew 13. The merchant was not acting out of cold religious duty. He was acting out of an encounter with something so beautiful, so exquisite and incomparable that it won his heart. Listen, to remove the pearl from the story is to leave the man with himself where there is nothing present to rouse his passion, no glorious pearl to quicken his pulse or inspire his soul. This is exactly what happens to us when we impose our own preconceptions upon Jesus Christ. We rob ourselves of seeing the pearl, of encountering the one thing in the universe that quickens us and fills us with the life that we do not have in ourselves. Last part, as the granddaughter... I want you to please, I want you to imagine this. As the granddaughter of that merchant could not possibly have lived on the inspiration of her grandfather's encounter, we cannot live on the joy of our ancestors' discovery of Jesus. We must come to know him for ourselves. Each generation must seek him and find him. Only then will we experience the quickening and the life and freedom our souls crave. And herein lies the crisis point for each generation in the church. It is only by knowing Jesus that we are set free for life. Yet, listen, the road to knowing Jesus requires that we acknowledge our baggage and deal with it. We must become aware of our habits of thought and examine our inherited ideas which we have shaped or which have shaped our perception of God. This in itself is painful and it is costly, but it also runs the risk of exposing the wrongheadedness of cherished notions. In marriage, to acknowledge our own baggage means running the risk of exposing family patterns that the family may prefer to keep swept under the carpet. In the Christian faith, to examine our mental instruments, to bring our habits of thought, our ideas and categories into the open, listen, is to run the risk of revealing the inadequacies or perhaps even the folly of our inherited theology. To follow Einstein is necessarily to call Newton into question. But Newton was no small man on the periphery of Western thought. Perhaps, and I'm going to just, this is the end of the page, so end of the chapter, so I'm going to just read it. Perhaps it's more than accidental that the first words of Jesus, and this is where I wanted to get, in John's gospel form a question, what do you seek? 
Is this not the question facing each new couple in marriage and each new generation of scientists and each new generation in the church? It is a simple question, really, but a loaded one. What do you seek? Translates into, is it real relationship that you want? Intimacy? Is it the truth that you seek? Is it life that you are after? And implicit in these questions is another. Are you prepared to do what is necessary to find what you really want? Like it or not, marriage, science, and theology live by repentance. We must be willing to have our minds reoriented. We must be willing to rethink everything we thought we knew. For it is only as we have our mental instruments revised that we're able to see more clearly, and only as we see more clearly that we experience the liberation and joy and life of such clearer sight. Last part. The price of, I promise, the, la, the price of Jesus Christ, as C.S. Lewis says, the price of Jesus Christ is to want him. The price of wanting him is willingness to have our minds converted. For we cannot know Jesus and thus experience the sheer life and freedom that only such knowledge produces if we are projecting our own preconceptions upon him. In such a case, it is not the real Jesus that we know at all, but a figment of our own imaginations. Such a Jesus will never fail to deliver the life we seek, as surely as a fake pearl would have failed to take the merchant's breath away. And such a Jesus leaves us with ourselves to constantly manufacture the kingdom, which leaves us with a kingdom that is no more than we can create. We must be willing to bear the pain of grinding out a better prescription for our glasses. Last sentence. To refuse to do so, to call a halt to the process and leave our habits of mind unexamined is to run the risk of missing Jesus Christ altogether and dooming ourselves to live a life, a kingdom, and a salvation of our own making. What do you seek? We've asked the world around us to do something that most of us, if we're being honest, have never fully done. Repent. I mean, I was at Soda City. We were at Soda City Saturday walking around, and there was a guy standing on the corner telling people to repent. And the question popped in my head. That's interesting that we command, you don't just ask, we command people around us to do something that 99%, and maybe I'm exaggerating, I don't think I am, 99% of those of us in the church, in the West, have failed to do, repent. Because repentance is not changing in direction. I mean, how many of us have heard this, okay? Uh, and if you've been here a while, this is totally review, but, but uh, this needs to be said. Repentance is not turning around and going a different way. Let me explain this for a minute. Um. A few years ago, me and Jordan went to Inveda, went to the apple orchard in North Carolina. I forget what it's called, but anyway, shout out. So, uh, or it would be a shout out if I knew what it was called. And there's a thousand apple orchards, so I guess it's not. We went, what, Skytop, there it is, Skytop. Skytop apple orchard. We, we would like a check for mentioning that on our live stream. Um, but 
we went to the apple orchard. We did the whole thing. We got back in the car and uh, we start driving. Okay. Well, we get about an hour or so into the drive and I pass a sign that is very familiar that said Biltmore next exit. Okay. Now, if you don't know where Skytop Orchard is, there's Columbia and then, you know, about an hour and a half or so in, into North Carolina is Skytop Orchard. And then about an hour past that is Biltmore. Okay. So I pass that sign and the thought crosses my mind. Wait a minute. But then I ignore it. We keep driving. And then we get to the exit that is super familiar. And I'm like, wait a minute. We've just driven over an hour in the complete wrong direction. Okay. Now, for most of us, repentance is, uh, how do I say it? Well, I'll just say it. All the guys in the room, especially if you're married or if you're in a relationship, have been in a situation where you're driving and your wife or significant other, whatever, says, this is not the right way. To which we respond, yes, it is. You know what I mean? To which they respond, I'm going to pull up Siri. To which we respond, don't do that. I've got this. Right? Okay? I see y'all laughing, so I know, I know who you are. This is what we see repentance as. We see repentance as the Holy Spirit being the wife on the passenger seat, right? Because Jesus is my co-pilot. If Jesus is your co-pilot, Lord, help us. You need to get out of the seat, go back to the cabin and eat some Biscoff cookies and let Jesus take the wheel. You don't need to be in the pilot seat. You know, Jesus is my co-pilot, Lord. That's probably where we get all of our problems. But anyway, but we see the Holy Spirit as over here saying, hey, this is the wrong direction. You need to turn around. And us saying, okay, I guess I better follow the, the word of the Lord. I'm going to turn around. That's not repentance. Repentance is you coming to the realization, I'm going the wrong way. And you consciously making the decision that because I long to be right, or because I long to be in the right direction, that change of mind becomes a turn in the road. But it's not just I'm turning and going in a different direction. Repentance, metanoia, is literally a change of thinking, which produces a change in direction, right? So if you're a Carolina fan, you hate Clemson. If you're a Clemson fan, you hate Carolina. But if there comes a point where you decide, you know what, I want to be a Clemson fan instead, that choice, that change of mind is going to become you sitting in Death Valley with orange on and screaming to the top of your lungs when the tigers come running down the hill, right? It's a change in thinking that produces a change in action. We have been so focused on getting a change of direction into people that a lot of people have made fake turns, which looks like pretending to be better than they are, pretending to not struggle with the things that they've always struggled with, pretending to be free of stuff that they're still enslaved to, because religion simply requires you to look like you're going in the right direction. And at no point do we stop and say, what is it on a mind level that has caused the wrong direction in the first place? That's repentance. But here's the thing. That doesn't start with morality with what you're doing. Repentance starts with how you see God. And we're willing to have a lot of discussions about whatever the topic of today is. 
and how repentance looks like in those topics. What we have royally failed to do, because nobody's willing to do it, is have a conversation of what does it look like to repent of the bad ideas that we've had about God. We need to repent of our perceptions. We need to change how we think. Let me read Romans 7. This is what Paul says. He says, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only during a person's lifetime? Thus a married woman is bound by the law to her husband, as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is discharged from the law concerning her husband. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. In the same way, my friends, in the same way, I want you to hear this, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might belong to another, or you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now, now, we are discharged from the law, dead to what with that which held us captive, so that we are slaves, not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. And he goes on. What then should we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, now I want you to hear what he says here. If it had not been for the law, I would have not have known sin. I would, have, I would not have, excuse me, known what it is to covet if the law had not said you should not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, listen, apart from the law, sin lies dead. Verse 4, in the same ways you have died to the law through the body of Jesus. Verse 8, apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Now, I want to mention this. Paul uses a lot of death and life language in, the, uh, in Romans 7 and 8, and obviously Paul is alive. Paul's not talking about he, himself literally dying. He's speaking to the reality that you can be fully alive and fully dead at the same time. You can be fully breathing and walking around and doing your job and going home and watching Netflix and eating whatever your favorite food is and grilling out and going to the pool and doing all the stuff that you do and be completely dead. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me. For sin seizing an opportunity in the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Now, obviously, like I said, Paul's alive. So he's speaking a lot deeper. 12. 12. 
So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Did what is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin working death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. That's big. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I, very familiar stuff, for I do not do what I want to do, and I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good, but in fact, it is no longer that I do it, but sin that dwells in me, for I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do want is what I do, excuse me, do not want, is what I do, verse 20. Now, if I do what, it, what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but the sin that dwells in me. 21, so... I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now, people have misused this neck verse so much, it's not even funny. You could teach a whole class on it. Wretched man that I am. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Boy, it saved an old wretch like me. God. Saved a wretch. I'm nothing but a wretch. Wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Ready? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, just to clear this up before we move on, Paul here is not saying he's a wretched man. The equivalent of what Paul is saying is, um, uh, God, this is so frustrating. Who will help me in this? Okay? It's a wordplay. So he's saying, because I do what I don't want to do and don't do what I do want to do. I love the law, but my members are doing this. What, what a wretched man that I am in this. Is that, you good? Clear that up? Okay. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Hypothetically, 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is a brilliant philosophical turn right there, if you'll read it right. He uses language. Wretched who will rescue me from this body of death? Who will do it? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Uh, now, listen to this. So then, so then, with my mind, I am a slave to the law of God. But with my flesh, I am a slave to the law of sin. Change. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Do you see this? Paul, and this is what happens when you take certain chapters of the Bible and read them and then move about your day. Because if you stop at the end of verse, uh, chapter 7, you think this thing's going way off. But if you read it all together, you see Paul is using chapter 7 to set up the climax that's coming in chapter 8. This is the mess that I am and was in. Then Jesus comes into the story 
and redeems me, sets me free from the law of sin and death. Verse 3, chapter 8. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Listen to this. So that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We did nothing. Christ becoming flesh and accomplishing the law is the law being accomplished, not just in the body of Christ, but in the body of humanity. He takes on human nature and does what we were incapable of doing so that we could be set free from the thing that we were incapable of doing. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Do you see a pattern here? Okay? For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh... And again, how many times do we stop there? Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Check out the next verse. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. Do you see, do you see what he's doing here? When you're here, it never works. But thank God you're not there anymore. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. Absolutely. That was the case before Jesus entered the story. But if Christ is in you through the body, though the body, excuse me, is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. Man, do you, this is brilliant writing here. He, he keeps bringing up the problem of us apart from God. And then right after that follows it up with the answer of Christ in us. I'm going to last couple of verses. I promise this is the last bit I'm going to read from books. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption, which cries, Abba, Father. If your Bibles, I want to answer this. Does the NIV say right there, when we cry, Abba, Father? Okay. In the Greek right there, the, the Greek text is literally, you have received a spirit of adoption, which cries, Abba, Father. So I just want to clear that up. It's the spirit within you that is witnessing. And Paul comes around and, and says this right here. It is the very spirit, that very spirit, bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So it's the spirit within you that is crying out, Abba, Father, bearing witness to the fact that you are a child of God. Okay? 
Verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Whew, that's a lot. In these two chapters, some of the most amazing writing in history, Paul lays out his argument for new life in Christ, essentially the gospel, by speaking on the law and new life as opposing forces pulling on your life and identity. Okay, so in Romans 7, 1 through 6, he starts with an analogy of marriage. I'm going to just hit these real quick. He says that if you're married to someone but live with another man while your husband is still alive, you're an adulterous person. But if your husband has died, you're released from that marriage law, from covenant, and free to marry another one. In the body of Christ, Paul says, you have died to your previous covenant partner, the law, and you now belong to another, Christ Jesus. So there's a couple of things I want to notice right here. Number one, you cannot, cannot be joined or married to both the law and Christ. You can't. Paul compares that in his analogy to adultery. He says, you must be fully married to one or the other, but you cannot have both. And then in number two, he says this. He says that we have died to the law. So not only has it been fulfilled, Matthew 5, 17, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, I came to fulfill it. Not only has it been fulfilled, Paul says that it is dead to us. Therefore, to live in the law is to live in something that is now non-existent for those in Christ. Now, we must speak right here to this idea of law in general to fully understand this. Because when I say law, I get, it never fails, I get the comment you know, where you're saying people can just do whatever they want. We don't, why, do we do, why do we say that? See, that, this, that needs to be repented of. At no point in my relationship with Jordan, uh, we never sit down and talk about, you know, okay, you better not go talk to other guys and I better not go talk to other girls, and, right? We don't do that. And yet, the fact that we don't do that doesn't automatically mean, because we don't talk about it, we go talk to other people. That's, that is crazy. We think that if we are set free from the law, it is, well, just do whatever you want. No, Paul says you're set free from the law and joined to Christ. So now you're not being led by what you better do or else there's punishment. Now you're being led by what you long to do in love. But it can't be both. So the idea of law in general, I'm doing some writing on this right now, so this is very fresh. I might edit this later, but I feel good about it to say it. There are three, in, in, in my view, in a lot of scholarship, there are actually three laws present in Scripture. Three primary laws. The first law, which we never talk about, is the law of creation. Ephesians 1 says that we were chosen in love before the foundations of the earth. And then in Genesis 1, it says that God made us in his image and likeness for what? To be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. So within that, there is a law. And the law is you've been chosen by God and you've been chosen by God for 
A, of course, primarily relationship with God, Father, Son, and Spirit, but then also you've been chosen by God in the image and likeness of God to steward the creation to become everything that it was designed to become. Primal law, number one. We were to avoid within this law to avoid the fruit of control. That's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Because if you need a knowledge of good and evil, the only reason you need a knowledge of good and evil is to have control. Matt teaches this a lot, but it's a tree of not being able to say enough. There's all, you've got to keep grasping for it. So the first law was defined by humanity being in the image of God. That's what defined it, first law. The second law is the law of Sinai, most familiar. In Romans 7, 7 through 25 that we just read, Paul says that the purpose of this law was to unveil our formlessness, our sin. Look at what 7 through 11 says. It says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And what is sin? A couple of weeks ago, sin is not just all the bad stuff that you do. Sin is you being misplaced from your proper place. And because of your misplacement, of course, everything that you do is going to be misplaced. Okay? So it's not just you're shooting arrows at a, at a target and you're missing and you're missing and you're missing and you're missing. It's that the target's over there and you're aiming over here. You could be a brilliant archer and nailing it 100% of the time and you're shooting them way out in the left field because you've lost your placement. Sin, hemartia in Greek, is a loss of form, a loss of portion, a loss of placement, okay? So Paul says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known that I was out of place. And known here is the Greek word oida, which is better understood as perceived. He says, I would not have perceived my formlessness had it not been for the law of Sinai. But it wasn't the law that was sinful. It was the good law that allowed us to perceive the results of our mishandling of the first law. According to Paul, before the foundations, or excuse me, before the introduction of the law of Sinai, he says that we were in the dark as to how far away we had drifted from our original design because of our breaking of the first law. I did not know. So what was God to do? What was God to do with this? Romans 5, 20 through 21 says, the law came in with the result that the trespass multiplied. Okay, y'all just hang with me. But where sin increased, grace increased or abounded all the more. So that just as sin exercised dominion in death, so grace might also exercise dominion through justification leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I love Romans 5, my favorite passage in all of scripture because it requires us and religion hates this, hates this. We explain this away with explanations. The explanations I've heard of how to explain away Romans 5 takes brilliant work. It's just wrong. Lord, you know what I mean? In Romans 5, Paul is forcing us to say whatever sin did 
in the fall, which is the fall is nowhere in Scripture. That, that language, nowhere. Okay, that's something we made up, the fall. Fall from where? Okay. And see, right, even as I say that, some of you are like, oh, I don't know about that. You know? But in Adam and Eve, Paul says, through what took place in the mishandling of the first law, sin reigned in death. However, Paul says, in the same way, in fact, multiple times in Romans 5, he says, all the more, grace and life and justification in Christ Jesus reigned over Adam's kids, which is you and I. So Paul is forcing us to say, whatever the effect and the demise and the collateral damage of the fall and sin, whatever you believe that is, you have to believe at minimum Christ did the same for the same group of people with the same collateral damage. And at best, you have to see that Christ did more than what one made in the image and likeness of Christ could ever possibly do. Salah. <laughs> so the first law, the first law is rooted in identity, who you are. The second law is rooted in what you do, ultimately revealing who you are not. But hang with me here. But if the law of Sinai is holy, it's not a law revealing who you are not in general, as if you don't have the capability of being something else. That's not what it's talking about here. It reveals who you are not right now because it ultimately reveals who you really are in God. The law of Sinai holds you to the standard that is like God. Go read it. Go read the book of Leviticus and get to the end of it. All that stuff is stuff that God does naturally. Right? Don't kill. <laughs> that's not in Leviticus, but that's, you know what I mean? That's in the Ten Commandments, Deuteronomy. Don't kill. In Exodus. Don't steal. Bring 10% so that the priest can have food to eat. You know what I mean? Uh, don't steal somebody else. After, after seven years and on the year of Jubilee, whenever all this stuff has been given away and sold out because you didn't have money to pay your bills and all that stuff, on the year of Jubilee, it all has to be restored. Slaves have to be set free and everything gets reset in the land. I mean, this is all stuff that is godly, holy stuff. So in the law, it is revealed in us what we have become but not only does it reveal what we have become, Paul says that it ultimately, in Romans 5, it brought to life the possibility of the grace abounding even more. So as the reality of our misplacement was becoming known, likewise, the reality of our redemption was becoming known all the more. The law of Sinai holds you to the standard that is like God. Why? Because you are like God. Yet because of our wondering, we were no longer bearing the unhindered image that we innately bear. Therefore, the standard, the law of Sinai, the standard comes in to show us how diluted our ideas and image had become. 
The law of Sinai had to reach its fullness so that the third and final law that I want to talk about could be instated and made permanent. And this is where the words of Jesus come in. And I mentioned this earlier in Matthew 5, 17, when he says, I did not come to do away with the law and the prophets, which is just a, a way of speaking to the Old Testament. The Old Testament was literally made up back then of the law and the prophets. So when he says, I didn't come to do away with the law and the prophets, we would say it like this today. I didn't come to do away with the Old Testament because that's where a lot of our struggles with God comes in. We love Jesus. We love who Jesus is. We love what Jesus did. But the thing a lot of people can't get over is the book of Job or the book of Joshua, right? We love to be strong and courageous. Everywhere the sole of your foot stands, I'll give you. We don't love the command that every woman and child in the land should die. Right? So the question is, how is that God and the God revealed in Jesus the same? Just, just hang with me for a minute. Hang with me. So Jesus says, I didn't come to do away with the law and the prophets. I didn't come to do away with that. I came to fulfill them. In other words, I didn't come to erase what was. I came to fulfill the purpose of what was. And what was the purpose? Paul says the purpose of what was the law of Sinai was to reveal sin. I came to fulfill its purpose. What was its purpose? Paul says to reveal sin. He came to fulfill the revealing of sin. Listen, why? So that he could put to death in the body as fully man and fully God the thing that was putting us to death. And having put that to death, we are now no longer held by our previous covenant partner. In the turn from seven and eight, Paul literally is saying that. Wretched man, wretched man that I am. If you want to really understand it, you could, you could understand it like Paul's saying this. He's using rhetorical language, but you can understand. Wretched man that I was, I was miserable. Who was going to save me from this? Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ. There is now no for condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, it's brilliant what he does. I'm almost done. This brings me to this last section in Romans 8. This last law, and it's the law of the Spirit. The law of the Spirit is much like the first law, but this time, rather than man in the image of God, it's God in the image of humanity in order to restore humanity from the inside. Rather than show us how to climb back to our image and likeness identity, God becomes our broken identity and redeems it from the place of brokenness out. Therefore, there's nowhere to climb back from now. God brings his world into our brokenness and makes our brokenness his world. Maybe you'll say it like this. Pray like this. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't it so, it's so interesting that we spend so much time talking about the earth is not my home. Literally it is. The earth is not my home. I'm just a pilgrim passing through. Right? There's hymns about that, is there not? 
I'm just a, bro, I'm just a pilgrim passing through. The irony is, I think everybody longs to be a part of the kingdom of God. According to the words of Jesus, the kingdom of God is longing to invade the place that you're just a pilgrim of. And maybe that's why we haven't seen the kingdom of God flood the earth as Isaiah and Habakkuk both see in visions prophetically as the waters cover the sea. The reason I believe that we haven't seen the kingdom of God flood the earth, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea is maybe because we've gotten so caught up in getting away from the very place that we were designed to reign until the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Amen, brother. The law of the spirit brings us into this. There is now no condemnation. In Christ, you are free from the law of sin and death. Now, there's a reason I'm talking about all this. He finishes this section with how I started today. What do you seek? But he does it a little less obvious. He talks here about the spirit and the flesh and death and life a lot. And he is speaking to present realities. I was studying this on Wednesday morning and I realized how much our preconceived ideas, the things that we bring to the text, change what the text means. Remember, everything that's led up to this point in the letter of Romans. If we read this as Paul saying, for example, if you do this and live like this, this will happen. If we read that, we're taking Sinai and reading Romans through the glasses of Sinai. Because Sinai was, if you do, if you do, if you do, then I, then I, then I. So if we read Romans 8, for example, or any of the New Testament, or I could argue any of the scripture, but you know, that's, we'll talk about that another day. If we now read this through the glasses of what Paul is saying is, if you do this, you'll get this. If you do this, you get this. If you get this, you get this. If you do this, that is Sinai. And that's the reason why we have a lack of understanding. I know, see, I can, I can feel the tension. If we read it like this, is Sinai talk. This is where repentance is needed. How do we understand this within the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word becoming flesh? Remember, Paul says before this, Paul, not me, Paul, we have died to the law of Sinai. And Paul says, you have to reconcile what Paul says. And I'm not going to tell you how to do it. I think you need to do it on your own. You have to reconcile Paul saying multiple times that you've died to sin. So what Paul is comparing here is not future possibilities. Based on what we do, Paul is contrasting what was with what is. He's contrasting the things that were with the things that are. This was once a reality, but now it is not. You were once this, 
but now you are this. He's not saying if you do this, you'll become this. He's saying, why on earth would you do that when you are now this? We are not, Paul says, indebted to the flesh, for if we were, it would cause death. Presently, by the way. In 7 verse 10, when Paul talks about saying, I died, past tense, in the law, yet he is 100% alive. These are metaphors to present ways of living. Okay? In fact, let me tell you this. In verse uh, 12, 13, he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. The Greek word here is apotheneske. Apotheneske. Apo means away from, which intensifies what it's connected to. In this case, theneske, which is death. So when Paul says, when you were in the law, you died, specifically. If you live according to the law or according to the flesh, you will die. Paul is saying, if you live apart from what he goes on to say after this, which is, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you live apart from the reality of the Spirit, which you are presently in, it produces death. Jesus said it like this. I am the way, the truth, and what? The life. And no one makes it to the Father except through me. But praise be to God, Jesus becomes flesh and makes a way for flesh to make its way back to the Father because there's no other way to the Father except through Him. So Paul is saying, if you are in Christ, why on earth would you live in the law again? And that's the question that I really want to ask a lot of you today. I want to ask anybody listening to this, because people love listening to this and picking through everything that we got to say, and I pray that you listen to this and pick straight through it. You ready? Why on earth, if you are in Christ, would you settle for religious living based on what you do and do not do, and that be the culmination of who you are, and that be what you project onto who God is, and you live your entire life showing up to church and giving a few bucks here and there, and worshiping every now and then in the car when nothing else is on the radio, and reading your Bible once a week because you're really worshiping this fictitious, made-up, imaginary God made in your image, and your image is broken anyway because you live your image based on what you do. And Paul says, your image is not what you do. Your image is what it was in the beginning and you never lost it. You just forgot it. You never lost who you were in the beginning, which is let us make man in our image and likeness. You are in the image of Jesus. And Jesus became your image when you were lost and broken and had no idea who you were. He became sin. He became formless. He became without identity as we were so that we could be placed back right again or righteous. That's the gospel. We don't talk about it. We're much more comfortable living in the place of, you better do this, you better do this. Did you see the news? Can you believe Disney's doing this? Can you believe this person's doing this? Right? I mean, I don't mean to be odd, but we, that's the world we live in. And I'm telling you right now, if that is the God that any of us worship, we're going to be real disappointed one day when we stand face to face and see a God that we do not recognize. Anyone led by the Spirit, he says, 
is children, anyone led by the Spirit are children of God. Anyone led by the Spirit, okay? And then Paul says, if I don't make that clear enough, let me make it even more clear for you. Here we go. You did not receive a spirit of slavery. You received a spirit of adoption. Adoption in the New Testament context is not simply uh, you belong to another family and another family brought you into theirs. That's our idea of adoption is great. I love adoption. Okay. But adoption in the New Testament wasn't just you're in another family. Here's another family and you just join this other family. Adoption in the New Testament, an adopted son or daughter had the same status in the family as a blood son or daughter. It wasn't just you're brought in and we're here and you're here and we're all kind of here together and we're all part of this family. But at the end of the day, when you cut us open, we're all kind of different still. No, adoption in the New Testament and the reason Paul uses this language here and Ephesians, he uses this language because adoption is you are a full-blooded son or daughter. You're not other than you are fully son or daughter in the family. So we received a spirit of adoption, which cries, Abba, Father, and it is that very spirit that is bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Anyone led by the spirit is children of God. And you receive the spirit that cries out within you, Abba, Father, which speaks to the fact that you are children of God. And if you are children of God, then you must be being led by the Spirit of God. Why? Because you didn't receive in the gospel a spirit of slavery to drive you back into Sinai's works-based law. You received a spirit of adoption, which cries out within you, literally in the Greek, dada. That's literally what the word is. Abba is so that when you read it, it doesn't get real awkward. But that's a horrible, it's not a horrible translation, it's okay. A much more accurate translation is literally, it's dada. Like my daughter when she was a baby, dada. Totally dependent, totally in love, and had no thought in her mind, these people might reject me. You receive the spirit in you that doesn't just cry out, Father God. You receive the spirit in you that cries out, Dada. And it is that very spirit within that cries out to give witness to the fact that we are now, we are now not what we were under the rule of Sinai, but children of God. And if that's the case, Paul says, then you are one with Christ. Now you can hop up here. So he starts with what would have happened had Christ not intervened, verses seven, chapter 7, verse 24 to 25. And he ends in chapter 8 with what has happened because Christ did, in fact, intervene, adoption. The Greek word, I already explained this, but the Greek word to die is not death. It's you're separated from what you're supposed to be joined to. You die because you're away from, away from what? Originality. And God, through Christ, brings you back close. So here we are. Here we are. In the modern West, who is baptized in a pseudo-Sinai law with a little bit of grace and a little bit of the blood of Jesus. 
we've been given glasses or perceptions to see God as, and we'll never say this, but if we're being honest, this is how we grew up. Most of us grew up seeing God as this, um, punitive, angry, fickle, God the Father, murderous, and a judge ready to strike the gavel of guilt over us. And you might say, well, I didn't grow up like that. We see God as fickle. We think when we go through things in life, there's whole doctrines built around this. We think that when we go through things in life that are bad, that are hard, that are, I mean, some of the worst things that a lot, some people in the room walk through really dark times in our life. We think and we believe, whether or not we say it, that we walk through those things because at the end of the day, somewhere deep down inside, we really deserve that because we're just sinners, right? I mean, this is what, we, we see God as fickle, as a judge, guilty. And in fear of that God, we've built up systems to maintain peace between our nasty selves and this enraged God at our nasty selves. And I, I know I'm being exaggerative, but I mean, this is what we've done. We give misinterpretations of Job and Joshua, emphasis on misinterpretations, by the way, we give misinterpretations of Job and Joshua precedent over God's own word in Christ and God's own image in Christ in the New Testament. We make Christ in the image of what we think is the God of the Old Testament. And in this, we make Christianity and the church a place where you have to become something to belong. And in the void of a failure to become what is expected of you, we put on masks and start to perform perfectly. Why do we do this? Because whether or not we know it, at our core, we just long to be embraced. We just long to be accepted. We long to be loved by the God that we hoped was for us only to have our hopes dashed at typically early ages with stories of fire and brimstone and anger. I know, I'm, I mean, this might be all We build up walls and distance because a God that is angry is scary. Then over time, these preconceived beliefs shield us from any other idea because ironically, the God of our imagination and religions is more comfortable because that's what we've always been told. However, I have amazing news for you today. Repentance requires us to see God, Old and New Testament, listen, as exactly like Jesus. Isn't it ironic that the New Testament doesn't have an updated version of Leviticus for us. Think about that. Jesus comes, fully God, 
fully man, Word of God, Jesus comes and we aren't left with Leviticus part two or Numbers part two or Deuteronomy part two. Here's what we're left with. You ready? John 13, 34 through 36. Jesus says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another, but not just with any love, just as I have loved you, you should love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I give you a new commandment. Can you imagine the disciples sitting on the edge of their seats? Here we go. We're about to get Moses at Sinai part two. You know, I give, I'm giving you a new commandment. You are to love with the love I've loved you with. Now, no, no, no. I think we, we, we misplaced this. You cannot love anybody with the love that's been given to you if you don't understand the love that's been given to you. You can't love other people with the love that God has given you if you don't understand the love that God has given you. And Jesus says, that is how the world will know that we're His. Not our big ministries, not our big voices, not our big superstars, not our Instagram handles and posts and threads now and all this other crazy stuff, right? It's not by our YouTube page. It's not by our extravagant buildings. It's not by how many missionaries we send out, though I love missionaries and support them and all that stuff. But it's, it's not by anything that we do. Jesus says, you wanna know how we're gonna change the entire globe? First, you're gonna understand the love I have for you. And then you're gonna take that love and you're gonna go to this person right next to you. And there on the inside of them, when they feel the craving to simply be loved and embraced by a father that will call them home at whatever the price, that are longing to be seen as the pearl in the field that the merchant is willing to sell, or the pearl that the merchant is willing to sell everything to purchase that the treasure in the field is so valuable that, the, that the, um, the purchaser, the buyer, is willing to trade everything that he has to buy the field in order to have the treasure. Those people that are longing to be embraced by the gospel will never be embraced by the gospel if we don't first become embraced by the gospel. And how do I know that? Because we'll spend Saturdays, and this is not a knock, okay? This is not a knock but we'll spend Saturdays on a street corner telling people if they don't repent, they will go to hell as fast as they know how to think. And at no point does that person walking by them that has never been told you're worth more than you think. At no point does the thought ever cross our minds. Wait a minute. Maybe the way that Jesus changed the world was not putting on a suit and armor and going to war against Rome. Maybe the way Jesus changed the world was becoming the very thing that no one else wanted to become in order to redeem it from the inside. Think about this. An orphan, because uh, the orphan and adoption language is used a lot in scripture. An orphan does not need to be told how awful they are, which made them an orphan. An orphan needs to look into the eyes of a father that says, I choose you. 
and many of us have been inundated with a gospel that says you got yourself into the mess you're in because of this and this and this and this and this. Therefore, that's all you're really worth. I mean, if you wanna change it, you better get to work. And very few of us, even in this room, very few of us have ever had anyone with any spiritual authority whatsoever simply say, here's the gospel. Jesus looks at you from the inside, not with all the mask, not with everything covered up, not with all the bad stuff hidden so we couldn't see it, but from the inside of the worst of the bad stuff, from the inside, he calls out and says, throughout all of this, in spite of all of this and with all of this, I choose you. I, uh, I shared a picture this week of our... Um, we have tree. I'm the worst gardener ever in history. So this is definitely a testimony and a miracle. Um, but because uh, I've done nothing to this tree. In fact, I've hated this tree forever. Um, if Jordan would let me, it'd be, it'd be gone. But nevertheless, um, we, we have a tree at the corner of our house. I don't know what kind of tree it is. Um, but anyway, and about 10 yards away at our neighbor's house, at the corner of their house, they have the exact same tree. And ours, about three weeks ago, started blooming these like bright pink flowers all over them. I mean, amazing. Theirs have yet to bloom any flowers whatsoever, except maybe like one at the, cor at the corner. It's just green and kind of bare. And so last week I was on a walk in the afternoon and I stopped and I just felt the Holy Spirit say, I want you to look at these trees. So I'm staring at these trees and I begin to go in my mind, because this is how my mind works. How is it that we have the same trees in essentially the same spot and my tree is blooming like crazy and their tree looks like it's about two days away from death? You know, how is this possible? And so I start going in my mind. I was like, I'm not gonna Google because I feel like this is a God thing. And so I'm not gonna Google. So I'm going in my mind and, the, and it hits me the only difference, we have the same water source because they're right there in the same place, okay? In fact, if anything, hers has more water because she actually take care, takes care of her stuff. But it's not the water. It's not the lack of being trimmed. The only difference between that tree and my tree is her tree has a giant maple tree in front of it that shades it from all sunlight. So Every, all, the entire day, the way our houses are laid out, the front of our house gets sunlight all day long. So the sun doesn't rise and set on one side of the house. It literally rises and sets on the front side of the house. So the back side's always shaded. The front side is always blazing hot, okay? So my tree gets direct sunlight all day long. As long as it's day outside, there's sunlight. Her tree never gets any sunlight. And I felt the Lord whisper to me, that's the difference between the gospel that most people have believed in. And if you can buy into it, and if you can allow yourself to be joined to it, the gospel that was announced in the early church, in Jesus, in Paul, in John, in St. Athanasius, and the, other, the others, the gospel was not you becoming something because of how hard you worked, your gospel was exposure to the light 
whose light was life to all mankind. And in that exposure of the light of who God is as seen in Jesus Christ, you finally become full bloomed. Carl Barth says this, I'm done. He says, God in Christ acts and speaks to reconcile the world to himself because he has bound himself to a man by the creation of heaven and earth and all things because he cannot tolerate that this covenant should be broken because he wills to uphold and fulfill it even though it is broken. The world of atonement in Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of communion of himself with man and of man with himself which he willed and created at the very first even in the face of man's transgression, he, God, cannot allow it to be destroyed. Allow what to be destroyed? The very first will and commandment of God. What do you seek? Come and see. What do you seek? Come and see. John's two disciples come up. Jesus says, what do you seek? They say, I want you to hear it. They say, where are you staying? And Jesus says, come and see. What do you seek? Jesus invites us to see as he sees and where he sees, not as we see. And I wanna challenge you to leave today. This is a very different type of sermon, but I wanna challenge you to leave today and ask yourself this question this week. What do, as uncomfortable as it is, what do I believe about God that is solely built on preconceived ideas from my past, from a tradition, from maybe hearsay, etc.? And then ask yourself the question, if there's much, what do I believe about God that has simply been revealed in Jesus? This, I believe, is maybe the primary calling of our church. And I've said this for about two and a half years now. To stare down the machine of Western ideology and say, there is more to the story than you ever dreamed. And then have the trust to actually allow the Lord to give and take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If you want a little Job. And you might, you might go home and be like, that was great. I don't understand. The, the challenge is that we must see God as exactly like Jesus and nothing less and nothing more. Exactly like Jesus. Listen, this is, uh, this, oh man, this ruffles feathers. Not like Moses. I love Joshua, obviously, but not like Joshua. Not like Isaiah, not like David, not like Samuel, not like Isaiah, not like Jeremiah, not like Ezekiel, not like Jonah. Hebrews says that he is the exact representation of God. The only legal way to view God is Jesus Christ, which is why 
I believe Jesus makes statements like, no man gets to the Father except through me. And we made that a, unless you do, and Jesus is not saying, no man can get to the Father unless they go through me. Could it be, and of course I'm asking this because I believe it is, could it be possible that Jesus is saying, you cannot get to the real and true and authentic Father unless you get to Him through me and me alone? So when you begin to think about who Jesus is in light of your story and what you've done and who you are and where you are and what you're doing or what you might do or all the other things that we start to categorize in ourselves, when you think of that, you have to think of Jesus and you have to think of what it is finished actually means. It's done. Paul says you're dead to sin. And what you need to ask and what I need to ask is, what does that mean? You're dead to sin. What does that mean? It means you're dead to aiming at something that you are not designed to aim at. In Christ, you've been brought back to true north. So let me pray. I see, I see you drifting. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. Lord, I thank you for the, the I guess it's a revelation. I, th- I think it's more of a repentance that you're calling us into. It's nothing new. Gospel is certainly not anything new. In fact, in Romans 4, in Romans 4, Paul quotes David. David. Now, David's time was before Jesus. In the Old Testament, he quotes David as saying, Blessed are those whose trespasses are forgiven, who you keep no record of wrong of. In the Old Testament. So, this is nothing new. But it's new to us because we've spent so much of our lives learning about a distorted view of God. And and again, that's not a knock because I don't think anybody ever does that on purpose. I think we just, a lot of times we fear, we fear allowing the Holy Spirit to get into our head and begin to give us a new mind. Romans 12, the renewing of our mind. We fear that. But I pray today, Lord, that you would give us the the dare. You would give us the trust to dive as hard as we need to dive into it, into a revelation of the Son of God and into a revelation of the gospel that comes from the Son of God. What does the gospel mean for me? It means I'm no longer a slave to brokenness. I'm no longer a slave to death. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm no longer a slave to my broken works. I'm no longer a slave to not living up. I'm no longer a slave to what people said about me. I'm no longer a slave to my past experiences. I'm no longer a slave to the fact that I doubt sometimes. I'm no longer a slave to the fact that I worry and am anxious about things sometimes. It doesn't mean you need to be enslaved to that and you need to be free from it. But at the end of the day, none of that makes up your identity. And the reason that we need to be free from it is because of that. It's because it's not who we are. And so God, I pray that you would allow us to re-see 
and get these new preconceived ideas in our heads that if it doesn't look like Jesus, it needs to be resubmitted to the idea of God in Jesus. So Lord, I love you. I'm thankful. I'm thankful for a church that can hear things that maybe they haven't heard and wrestle with them and allow the Holy Spirit to lead them into things that even I've not said today. That's, what, that's literally what a church is. It's a group of people with different minds, with different ways of seeing, with different thoughts, with different ideas coming together until what Paul says, we come into the full stature of the maturity in the Son of God, the full knowledge of the Son of God. So God, we honor you today. Thank you for what you're doing in us and it's in your name, amen.